0: Well, if you would please turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 2, Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, You're also welcome to uh, follow along. The words will be up on the screen behind me. There's also a Bible, should be a Bible, underneath the seat in front of you as well. Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. The children's song uh, that they welcomed us to participate uh, in it's a song of, of coming to worship. It's a song that is, uh, that is driven by a response, a response of coming, of drawing near, and to worship. It's an invitation to angels to come and worship the King. It's an invitation to shepherds to come and worship the King. It's an invitation to, to saints to come and worship the King. And that is why we celebrate the Advent season. That's what we give our attention to coming and worshiping the Christ, the King who has been born into the world to save His people from their sins. It's the essence of Advent. And this is also the center of uh, today's message. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, They departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Matthew's Gospel is a book that is very much concerned with kings and kingdoms. One of the central themes, in fact, of the Gospel of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven and the king who is the king of that kingdom of heaven. From the very beginning in Matthew chapter 1 we read of the genealogy of Jesus Christ pointing to the fact that he comes from a royal lineage. And then immediately we come into chapter 2 where we hear these strange men from a foreign country coming to worship this king who's been born in Judea. And following that we hear of John the Baptist, a kind of town crier, a a herald for the king Whose primary task is to prepare the way for the king. And then immediately following that, we hear of this newborn king now fully grown and his experiencing temptation as a king. And then we get into Matthew chapter five, where we read of this king's first sermon, a sermon that is very much concerned with the kingdom of heaven. What is this kingdom of heaven like? What are the citizens? of this kingdom-like. And further on, in the book of Matthew, we continue to hear about this theme of the king and the kingdom. When it comes to who are the ones who will be part of the kingdom and who are the ones who will not be, Jesus himself says in his sermon, Matthew seven twenty one, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, or who says to me, God, God, Will enter kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, that is the one that you can expect to be part of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is described as a hidden treasure that a man found, and in his joy, sells all that he has to purchase the field where the hidden treasure is. The kingdom of heaven is described as a man searching. Find pearls and he finds the one pearl of great value. And so he goes back and he sells everything that he has to purchase this one pearl of great value. The central message of this king and this kingdom is found in Matthew 3 2. And that message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here, it is in your midst. So Matthew, his gospel, wastes no time going from genealogy to his kingship, to the message of the king. And in this passage, we read of a prophecy given long ago, there in chapter 2, verse 6, and it tells us what kind of king this is. It says, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So we immediately see that this is a, a shepherd ruler. This is a ruler, and what is his manner of rule? It is shepherding. He is shepherd-like. And to understand, to have a clearer picture of what a shepherd is like, or what kind of rule this king or God, that this, that this king is characterized by. You might look, for example, Psalm 23. Right? It's familiar to many Christians, familiar also to many non-Christians as well. Right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down by green pastures. Right? He restores my soul. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will feel no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is the kind of rule that governs this king that has been born into the world. If we look to other examples as well, such as the Gospel of John, where we see much more pointedly the, the shepherding manner of this ruler, where it tells us there that this shepherd is one who leaves the nine to nine who has been gathered to go and seek out the the one that's been lost. This is the one who goes into the fields and goes into the world and brings back all of the wandering sheep. That he's not like a hireling that immediately runs away when there is danger, but this is a shepherd that will remain with his sheep and even go so far as to laying down his life for his sheep. So this is a gentle ruler. And gentleness is not a weakness. When it comes to rule and authority, right, we need people to govern with rule and authority. We need people in positions of power. But it's the exercise of that power that oftentimes goes wrong. You might have somebody who is on one side of the spectrum, where he's weak, has the power and authority, but does not exercise that authority and that power in a way that he should, where authority is kind of like a sword, somebody with a sword, and there's someone in danger. You want that person to take out the sword and protect you. But some rulers are too weak to take out the sword, and that leads to a ruination of a people. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have some with authority and power, but they still do not know how to wield that authority and power. They do not know how to wield that sword and still end up the ruination of his own people. You need someone in the middle, in the balance, and that's what gentleness is for. Gentleness is not a weakness, but gentleness is an ability to be able to steward one's authority and power in a way that is profitable and of service to the people. You might think of the story of of Mice and Men, a story that most of us are probably familiar with, where Lenny, A caring guy, sweet guy, but strong as an ox, incredibly, incredibly strong. And he does not know how to wield his strength in a gentle manner. He ends up hurting things and even hurting people. We have here a description, a very short description of what this king is like, has been born into the world. He is a shepherd ruler. He's a ruler who is governed or characterized by a gentleness He knows how to wield his strength. This is the kind of king that dominates Matthew's gospel and upon which the Bible is centered. And so this king is born, and then we have the wise men who come to worship this king. And with regards to these wise men, we don't know very much about them. The scriptures do not describe to us what exactly they're like, what are their customs, what are their traditions, what are their cultures, where exactly they're from. They're complete strangers, according to what we read in the scriptures. But all we know is that they come from some faraway land to worship someone. What we do know about them is very important, and that is they have insider information. They have this this truth that no one else seems to know. Not even King Herod does not even know. There are some who know, like the religious leaders and authorities of Jerusalem, but they seem to care very little about this information. These strangers come into a land that is not their own, and they come directly to the king, a king who reasonably expects that they're coming to worship him, and to his surprise, they're coming to worship a different king, a king in your own kingdom. What they're saying. Here, about a couple weeks ago, we spent some time considering the, the word worship in the scriptures. And what does this word mean? And oftentimes, the word can mean lying prostrate on the floor, it can mean touching one's forehead to the ground. That worship isn't just singing, worship isn't just lifting one's hands, but worship, more importantly, is a disposition of the heart. It is paying homage, it is paying reverence, it is paying due respect to one who is worthy of honor and glory and respect. And this is what these wise men, or magi, come to do. And as part of their worship, as part of bowing down to this king, they also present gifts. And we don't know what the gifts mean. Some people suggest that the presenting of gold points to the fact that this is a king, pointing to the royal status of this newborn child. That the frankincense being a kind of incense points to the fact that this king who has been born into the world is, is deity. He is some kind of God, taken from the Old Testament and the burning of incense as a form of worship to a deity. And the myrrh, being a kind of embalming oil that perhaps pointed to the fact that this newborn king, that this deity king, is one day going to die. Who knows whether or not the wise men had that kind of understanding and if that's the reason why they presented these particular gifts, perhaps they knew more than we are led to believe, maybe. But what matters most is that they came and responded and that response was worship. And this entire narrative, verses one through twelve, is driven by many responses. Response after response of the response. The wise men come in response to the fact that a newborn king has come into the world. Herod, in response to this news, brings about the religious teachers and the scribes and gathers them together, and they ask them, "What are you? Ta- what are these guys talking about?" In response to this news, Herod becomes troubled. In response to the news, all Jerusalem becomes troubled. In response to the star miraculously appearing and leading the wise men to where this king has been born. they come and they worship. It is driven by a response. You have positive responses, glorious responses, but you also have some negative responses. And particularly striking is King Herod's response. Herod is a king of the world. Not in the sense that he is the the king of the world, but he is a king of the world. He is a king that comes from the world. That he is a worldly king. That he is an earthly king. That he is a king representative of the kingdoms of the world. And King Herod, historically, according to writings, he's accomplished many things with his power and his authority but he was also a very troubled man, deeply troubled. One example of his troubled personality and conscience and inner disposition is seen in the fact that he forbid any large gatherings of people because he feared that people might be conspiring against him. In his severe paranoia, he even executed his own subjects Even his own family members, including sons, and even his favorite wife, all because he believed that they were conspiring against him. Upon his deathbed, he gave one last order to his soldiers, and that was to go to these particular individuals, these particular groups that he thought might be celebrating the fact that he was going to die. Weak men with power will always want to flex their authority muscles, especially when someone else comes on the scene who holds similar or even greater power than they do. So King Herod was deeply troubled, and the passage also says that all Jerusalem was troubled with King Herod. Why would they be troubled? Because they understood that King Herod was a deeply troubled man. They knew of his paranoia. That the fact that this newborn king has been born into the world, that this news has come about, has sort of stirred the calming the calm waters. And now they feared. Like, what's gonna happen? The king now is in a bad mood. What's gonna happen to us? What's he going to do? You can understand the response giving King Herod's paranoia and deeply troubled personality, but it's still a shocking response because this is their king. This is a king born for you. This is a king born to be your savior. Herod gathers all the religious leaders to try to ascertain what are these wise men, these strange men talking about? They point to the scriptures that a ruler, a shepherd ruler is to be born in a small town of Bethlehem. But even they don't care enough to travel with the wise men and visit this king and worship this king. Later on, we'll really come to understand why. John 12, 43 makes clear that the religious authorities loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They would go on to reject this newborn king because he was not a king that they expected. He was not a king in their image. He was not a king that was going to protect their own personal glory. So they would go on and reject this king. As I said earlier, Matthew is a book about kings and kingdoms, and so is the story of Advent. Advent is about kings and kingdoms. We see here the kingdom of man represented in King Herod's kingdom. The pursuit of kingdoms and establishing of kingdoms is as old as the beginning. The very beginning, we read in the scriptures that man sought to make a name for himself and so they would build a tower that would attempt to reach the heavens itself. To make a name for themselves, to build a city for themselves, to build a kingdom, but it was a kingdom in the form of man. Kingdoms are not a bad thing, They're not it's not a bad thing to pursue. The establishing of kingdoms is the ground that oftentimes is wrong in the establishing of kingdoms. When it comes to comparing the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of men, there's a vast difference between the two. And it begins at its at its foundation. Augustine in his book City of God points to this vast difference between these two kingdoms, or as he calls them, cities. He says, we see then that the two cities or two kingdoms, kingdom of man, kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, were created by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by self-love reaching to the point of contempt of God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, Carried as far as contempt of self. In fact, the earthly city glories in itself, the heavenly city glories in the Lord. The former looks for glory from men, the latter finds its glory in God. There's the foundation. One is driven by love of self, the other one is driven by love of God. And that produces very different kingdom citizens. Jesus himself, as he began his ministry, began with the message of the kingdom, which is repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. Why does he say that? Because the king has arrived. The king is in your midst. The king has come, and so now it is time to turn your attention to the king. More than your attention, turn your life to the king. Turn your heart to the king. When the Roman Empire Acquired new territory, they would make every effort to make that new acquired territory as much as possible as Rome. Changing culture, religion, traditions, education. I mean, they would even go on and establish Roman bathhouses in the new territories that they acquired. Why would they go through so much effort? Because they wanted Caesar to feel at home wherever he went. Jesus, as a shepherd ruler, has come into the world. And he means to establish, and the scriptures tell us that he will one day return. He seeks to establish his kingdom upon the world, to form it into his own image, so that wherever he goes, it is representative of him and he feels at home. Revelation 6.16 speaking about the kingdoms and the kings and rulers of kingdoms in the world. When they behold the second coming of Jesus Christ, they fall down and they are in fear. And they even go so far as to call the mountains and rocks to fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Two words there that probably don't belong in the same sentence. That is wrath and Lamb a lamb is the last thing that you would expect to be wrathful. Perhaps a lion, but not a lamb. But I think it, gets to point, it points to the fact of the dual nature of King Jesus, that he is gentle, that he is shepherd light, but he also comes in fury, that he will come in fury against the kingdoms and the kings that refuse to submit to his lordship. The story of Adventists, the story of kings... In kingdoms, and it's also a story of warring or competing allegiances. In Psalm chapter 2, a psalm very much concerned with kings and kingdoms, it says there, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart, And cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It goes on to say, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. God has set His King on the throne, and this King is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the passage warns all kings and rulers of the earth and their respective kingdoms kiss the sun or Reconcile yourself to the sun. Make friends with the sun, or else you will perish. For His wrath is quickly kindled. On the other hand, blessed are all who take refuge in this King. It's not just about kings and kingdoms and larger kingdoms, and great and powerful kings and rulers of the earth. This is also very much concerned with the smaller kingdoms, the kingdoms that are represented by each and every single person here in this room. The kingdom of your lives, the kingdom of your hearts. In each of your lives, you function as a kind of king or queen where you govern your own life, You establish your own rules, you pursue your own passions, you give yourself to the things that you desire to give yourself to. When it comes to those smaller kingdoms represented in every single heart of man and woman, the question is, will you surrender your kingdom to the greater kingdom of King Jesus? And will you do so before the coming of his wrath and terror? But before the coming of his terror and wrath, he commands all men everywhere gently and lovingly submit the kingdom of your life to mine. And he does this even this very morning gently, shepherdly, and lovingly. If you have yet to submit your kingdom to mine, submit it today. How does he speak so gently? How does he speak so lovingly? How does he compel you this morning to submit your kingdom to the kingdom of Christ? Let me put it to you this way. Someone had once told this story, of this ancient king, this ancient kingdom. And this kingdom was characterized by peace. The people loved their king. There was so much peace, in fact, in the land that for years... There wasn't a single crime in the entire kingdom. And then one day, one of the king's servants comes into the king's throne room, kneels before him and says, My Lord, a crime has been committed. There's a thief who's been stealing from others, and we don't know who it is. And those who were there to hear these words were shocked, just as shocked as the king was, The king almost didn't know what to say because it's been so long since it's been a crime in the entire kingdom. And finally he says, I want you to find the thief, and when you find him, bring him to me, and he will receive ten lashes of the whip. Those who heard were shocked. It's been quite some time that anybody has been whipped for committing a crime, so the servant goes out. A week goes by, the servant comes before the king, and in dismay, he says, my lord. I'm sorry to say, but the thief has not been caught. And the robbery has only gotten worse. We continue to receive reports of people saying that their things have been stolen from them in the middle of the night. The king is beginning to get angry He says, I want you to go and continue to look for this thief, and when you find him, bring him to me, and he will receive 25 lashes of the whip. The people who heard this are shocked. Can anybody survive 25 lashes of the whip? The servant goes out. Another week goes by. The servant returns. He says, my Lord, we have yet to find the thief. And he still continues to rampage your kingdom, stealing from your citizens. The king is now in fury. He says, go and find that thief and bring him to me immediately and he will receive 50 lashes of the whip. And At that point, people are like, nobody can survive 50 lashes of the whip. Finally, The servant returns. He says, my king, we found the thief. The king says, bring the thief to me. A large crowd gathers, but it splits down in the middle as the soldiers come bearing the person bound in chains. And everyone is absolutely surprised because the person who's been thieving in the kingdom is not the person they expected because the person they behold before them is someone who is frail and small. And this person is, is crying uncontrollably and is shaking for fear of the king's wrath. And when the person comes close enough for the king to recognize to his utter shock and dismay and to a wound to his own heart, he realizes that the one who's been thieving in his own kingdom is none other than his aged mother. And when people realize this, they question and they ask themselves, is our wonderful and merciful king going to pardon his dear mother? Or is our righteous king going to do what he said he would do and give this thief what she deserves? The king commands one of his soldiers to bring the whipping post. They bind the king's mother to the whipping post. They tear out her back garment to expose her back. The soldier grabs the whip and he looks to the king and the king says proceed soldier and you can tell on his face he's reluctant to follow those orders but he obeys those orders he takes the whip and he brings it back and suddenly the king says halt to the great relief of everyone who was there but it didn't last very long the king rises from his throne removes his royal crown, places it on the royal seat, removes his royal tunic, exposes his back, goes to his mother and covers her with his large body, exposing his back to the soldier with the whip, and he looks to the soldier and he says, Proceed. Jesus Christ, the King who has been born into the world, came into the world to receive the lashes of the wrath of God for your sake. He did not deserve it. But you and I did because of our sins against a wonderful and loving and holy and righteous God. We deserved judgment. We deserved wrath. We deserved to be tied to the whipping post. We deserved to be crucified to the cross. But instead, this king calls all men everywhere to submit their kingdoms to him by dying on the cross and taking the wrath of God for our sake. And He rose again from the dead three days later. And He calls all men everywhere. He calls all you today if you have yet to make that decision to submit the kingdom of your life to His kingdom, to following Him and to do so now, before He comes. Because the Scriptures have promised that He is coming again one day, and He's not going to call gently and lovingly, but will call, or not, rather, not call anymore. But He will come in wrath and fury against all those kingdoms that have not submitted to His Lordship. This is a story of competing kingdoms, of warring allegiances, and also of very different citizens. King Herod, upon his death, in his last words, commanded the execution of those that he thought might celebrate his death. And King Jesus, in his final words, prays to the Father, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the King who's come to be born into the world. This is the King who is perfect. This is the king who gave his life. But the only question that remains is, will you surrender your kingdom and your life to King Jesus? Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we look forward to your, the day. As citizens of your kingdom through faith, we look forward to the day that you will establish your kingdom upon the face of the earth. You mean to make this world your home. You mean to make it into your image. And we, as your citizens, will be glad to receive our king. Lord, but until that time come, we pray that you might continue to establish your kingdom in the hearts of men. That you would establish your kingdom in the lives of those who have yet to surrender their kingdoms to your lordship. We pray, Lord, for a great salvation. We pray that even many here have yet to do so, might submit to your Lordship. We pray that even amongst our own family members or dearest friends, that they too might submit the kingdom of their lives to King Jesus. Would you do this, Lord, for your great glory and name? Lord, and would you help us those who have submitted our kingdoms to you. Help us to live in a manner that reflects your glory and honor. And help us to be faithful heralds of your kingdom to all those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.